many of you all have a dining room table? Probably most everybody. What's the main purpose of your dining room table? I don't really mean the intended purpose. I mean, what do you actually use it for? How many of you come together every single day and eat at least two meals a day with your family around your table? Very many. What about one meal? Once a week, perhaps? How do you think your lives would change if you not only invited your family to come and eat around the table daily, but also friends, and you did this on a regular basis? I bet you would find that you would talk to each other a lot more, your communication among your family and then also among friends that you share in the community would probably grow. You would enjoy each other's company. That's purely just eating meals, sitting around a table. But in the same vein of thought, we can ask, what is the purpose of the church? Why do we come together and partake of the Lord's Supper? Which, at least in the days of the early church, was a meal. And we still partake of that meal now. How many of you all consider yourself part of this church or part of a church? What's the main purpose of attending church in your mind? What do you think it is? These are the things I want you to start considering this morning. How do you think your lives might change if you viewed church not as a place to come hear a sermon or to learn information, but if church was actually a time of getting together with each other, partaking of a meal, both with the family of God, the people here, but also with God Himself? Jesus being with us. This is what the early Christians meant when they talked about breaking bread. This is what the church was in the first and second century. In the third century, and actually for quite a while longer, the church meant something like coming together and enjoying a meal with each other, oftentimes in each other's homes, enjoying fellowship with one another. See, Jesus didn't actually build any church buildings. Rather, he established a community. And there's very little evidence, even of the meetings that they were holding in the synagogues, as being in buildings other than people's homes, at least in the first century. That's when the apostles were preaching. So most of the time, when we're reading through the book of Acts, or when we read through the New Testament, and we come across that word church, rather than imagining something like what we have with pews and where everybody sits down and perhaps we sing a few songs and maybe you're looking at your watch, when are we going to get out of here? Church in the New Testament, church in Scripture, meant something more like a family dinner, but among God's family. And sometimes they would even set a place for Jesus. This is because Jesus didn't establish any church buildings. He was a rabbi. He walked around and he had followers, disciples, people who walked after him to learn his ways and to learn his teachings. And by this way, he established a community. And then he handed over the authority of that community to the apostles. And he made them missionaries. That's what the word apostle means. He made them missionaries to go out and to establish more communities in his name. Meaning that as they gathered, they would eat and they would have a good time. And as Joe was reading out of 1 Corinthians, sometimes some of them were having much too good of a time, becoming drunk and becoming full even before everybody got up to the line to get food. 
But what was being established by the apostles was a community of people that would get together regularly and eat. And from their coming together and partaking of the Lord's Supper flowed a community that was very strong and that shares several other characteristics. And Acts 2 is where we're going to be at today. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 41 on down through 47, we read about several characteristics that describe the early church. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this is what Luke tells us. He says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These are the four characteristics of the Christian community that was meeting in Jerusalem in the first century. First, apostolic teaching. What does that mean? Well, they actually had the apostles. But we can do the same thing today. When they were meeting in the book of Acts, for most of that time period, or at least in the beginning chapters of the book of Acts, a time is being depicted before there was any New Testament written. And so as the people were coming together, the teaching that they were receiving was all oral teaching. That's why we still continue to preach in church today. And this is very important. The teaching is one of the fundamental uh, pieces of that foundation of the early Christian community. They came together and they were taught and they were instructed on how to live, how to be a community for God, how to have fellowship with God. And then Luke tells us that they fellowshiped with one another. And if you read through the book of Acts, you get the idea that they did this a lot more than just for an hour on Sunday mornings. That that fellowship included times throughout the week when they would meet with each other. And as they met, they always met with each other as Christians. They didn't meet to do other things. They didn't meet to put other aspects of life at the forefront. But as they met together, at least as it's depicted in the book of Acts, they were meeting to have Christian fellowship. And if you're wondering what that might be, what does it mean to have Christian fellowship, Luke goes on to describe it. He says, it was the breaking of bread. Now in scripture that phrase could mean several things. But it at least means in the New Testament that there's always a relation to the Lord's Supper. And so at some point in time in their fellowship, and of hearing the apostles teach, or hearing the teaching of the apostles by some other preacher... They would partake of the Lord's Supper, and this is the breaking of bread. And then also they were devoting themselves to prayer. And prayer in this sense isn't necessarily the type of prayer that we most normally do. I don't think they sat down in a circle and said, oh, what are your problems and what's going good in your life? And we'll pray about that and we'll go around the circle. Although that's oftentimes what modern day prayer groups look like. The prayers that you find recorded in the New Testament are usually to the end of the people of God, the Christians, becoming more and more a community that looks like and can be identified as the kingdom of God ruled by Jesus Christ. Meaning that as they were praying, they were praying that they would be changed and transformed into people who look like Jesus. Into a community that looks like the community of the apostles that we read about in the New Testament. Now there's these four defining characteristics that are listed in Acts chapter 2. But three of them all relate back to one, and that's the breaking of bread. The other three, the apostolic teaching and the fellowship and even their prayers, all flow from the fact that as a community of believers, they would come together and they would participate in a meal that they were having not only with each other, 
but also having with God. And then Acts chapter 2 verses 43 through 47 further explains what it meant to be the community that breaks bread together. So if it's still a little foggy to you, we're going to do a little bit more explaining. Verses 43 through 47. Luke tells us everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. That doesn't mean they were just like each other, it means they were sharing possessions. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice what Luke highlights from verse 42. He talks about some of the other things. The fact that they're meeting with one mind, that they're thinking alike, is due to the apostolic teaching. They're praying together, and he mentions that too. But the same phrase from verse 42 that is repeated exactly is that they were breaking bread with each other. And you get the feeling, as Luke is trying to describe the beginning of the church and what it means to be the church, at the very center of that definition is the Lord's Supper. That as Christians, we come together and we are the community of God because we participate in this meal that joins us together and joins us with God. Now, you may be sitting there and thinking, how does a bit of juice or wine and a bit of bread make us the community of God? Well, the rest of the New Testament is answering that question. Because what you get in the letters written by the apostles, whether it's Paul or John or Peter is not that they were going out as missionaries trying to establish a community or trying to establish the church. They all talk about the church as something that they have received from Christ. The church or the gathering, the assembly, the people who get together and are called the family of God, that's not something that any one of us can establish. It wasn't even something the apostles could establish, but it was something that they could give or invite others into. And that's our role as well. So if you read Paul's letters especially, communion stands at the center of each one of them in a different way. Because usually the problems that he's writing about, trying to correct, is that one group of people in the church have told another group of people in the church that they didn't want to eat with them any longer. They don't want to take communion with them any longer. So you poor folks go do it over there, and us well-to-do folks will do it over here. Or perhaps it was us who were Jews before we became Christians. We'll take communion in the house. And all of you Gentile converts, you can take communion in the courtyard. Whatever it is, this seems to be the way people were being divided in the New Testament epistles. And Paul in Galatians even threatens to anathematize, to curse those who will not fellowship and break bread with the rest of God's family. This is at the very center of Christianity. Communion is just as salvific in the New Testament as baptism is. If you're not participating in communion of the Lord's Supper, if you're not partaking of this meal with the body of Christ, the believers, you all, and with Jesus himself, then you should really wonder and you should be curious about what the status of your relationship with God is. That's how important 
the Lord's Supper is in the New Testament. And so here's how Paul explains it to the Corinthians. If we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In verses 23 all the way down through 26, this is what Paul says. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now as we read through that, it's pretty straightforward until that last verse. Paul is saying, I have received this practice. I have received this meal and this tradition from Jesus himself. That when you partake of the bread and when you partake of the cup, You are partaking of the kingdom of God. You are partaking of the family of God through Jesus. Through Jesus becoming just like one of us. But then that last verse. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's pretty powerful. Paul is saying that when we come together and then we become the church as we participate in this meal we begin to proclaim the salvation that is found in Jesus. His death. That He died so that our sins would be removed. So that sin and death and evil were conquered that day on the cross. This is the meaning of the cross, and this is the meaning of the Lord's Supper as well. It's not just that, though. And we probably most often associate this meal with Christ's death and resurrection. But the early Christians didn't just associate it with his death and resurrection, but they associated the meal with the incarnation of God. Now that's fancy theological language, incarnation. What do I mean? I mean that God, who is not a person as you and I are, not a human being in other words, becomes a human being in every single way just like us to identify with us and does that from being born all the way up until death, just like we experience human life. And he did that without ceasing to be God as well. So that what it means to be God, on the one hand, uncreated, unknowable, unfathomable, infinite, and what it means to be human, finite, somebody who grows and gets old and dies, those two things, which are two very different things, one created and one uncreated, become one in the one person of Jesus Christ. And that's important. Because before Jesus brought what it meant to be God and what it meant to be human together, there was really no opportunity for a true and full relationship on our end with God Most High. Even though God is always ever present among us and in His creation, He's the God who is close and near at hand. But Jesus has made a relationship possible. And at the center of any relationship, just as I began to talk about meeting and eating with each other, we might find a meal. A time where you sit down with one another and you spend some quality time in conversation with good food. This is how you get to know somebody. And this is what God has done for us. 
He's invited us to His table, a place where, apart from Jesus, we could never sit. And the fact that we do sit at the Lord's table and that we partake of the Lord's Supper is the sacred remembrance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so when Paul says that we're proclaiming the Lord's death, he means all of that. In other words, you don't get the death of Jesus without the incarnation and a full incarnation. God passing through every stage of human life as a human so that we might fully be able to have a relationship with him. So the Lord's Supper is a symbol. It is a sign. But it's not the kind of symbol or sign that doesn't mean anything. It's the type of sign or symbol that is full and impregnated with what it is signifying. Another sign like that that many of you might have on one of your hands, your left hand, I guess, is this wedding ring. You might say, well, it's just a symbol. But I imagine if you stood up at the front of a church or you stood up outside or you stood up in front of the justice of the peace, when you slipped that ring on your finger, your status as a human being changed from one who was single and could do uh, with you know, boundaries, pretty much whatever you want, to somebody who now has to care for another human being. Somebody who is now doing life with another human being. Yeah, it's just a sign, it's a symbol, but something changed. Something real happened when you got married. In the same way, when we partake of communion, I mean, I know it's not literally Jesus' blood or Jesus' flesh that we're eating, though it really does become His death and resurrection and life to us. The emblems really do become the incarnation to us in such a way that we get transformed into the church into the community that was established by Jesus nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, as I bring the sermon to a conclusion, I want to use another illustration that at first is going to seem a bit odd to you. It's one that I heard from a professor that I'm close to and had in my undergraduate who was a missionary to Japan for over 25 years. And in Japan, he'd say that most families have what's called a butsudan in their household. It's a little shrine, it's a Buddhist shrine that has some connection to their family, to their family's name. Sometimes it has a few tablets that have all of the names of their deceased relatives written down on it. And the shrine is usually located in the main living area of the house. And all of the furniture in the house is arranged in such a way that it's facing towards this little shrine. Now what's so odd about this is this is true of 90% of rural Japanese families and 60% of urban Japanese families, but only about uh, 50% of Japanese will claim any type of religion, and that's divided between Buddhist and Shinto. The numbers make no sense, in other words. So there's people who would claim to not be religious, not to really believe in any gods, to be atheists, but they still have in their main living space of their house this little shrine that's at the center of all of their furniture and symbolically at the center of their lives. How strange. Does that seem odd to you? But I wonder if I walked into your all's houses and I walked into the main living area of your house, wouldn't I find your furniture arranged around a black box that symbolically serves as the center of your life? And you may say, oh, I don't don't watch it that much or... Uh, you know, I, I just want to watch the game on Sundays and 
you know, or a movie, sometimes with the family. It's a good time together. And there's nothing wrong with watching television. There's nothing wrong with having a television. But having it at the center of our main living space, I think is probably symbolic of the way we all live. We live in comfort. We live in such a way that we consider our time to be our own. You weren't eating at the dining table, but I wonder, are you eating in front of that box? This box that isn't a person and yet continually talks to you seems to get in the way of any other kind of real relationship you might have with other people. And it's because we need to relax. We need to unwind. We work so hard. And so we have to have a little bit of rest. But the way we rest, or the way most of us rest, is probably in such a way that it considers our own comfort and ourselves as an individual first. Because the whole thing is tailor-made to be about you and your viewing experience. If you get tired of watching one channel, there's like hundreds of other channels. You can always find something. And it makes you go into yourself. It makes you care less about others. Perhaps television isn't doing all of that, but that's certainly the way we live. That's our American definitions of comfort and of wealth. Remember, the early church wasn't a church built by Jesus, not a building anyway, but it was a community established by him. And at the center of this community is the Lord's Supper is a meal that brings us together in fellowship with each other, but more importantly, a meal that is reconciling us to God so that we might fellowship with Him as well. If we were meeting like the early Christians did, a dining room table or just any meal wouldn't even be the center of our lives or the center of our fellowship, but rather communion itself, the Lord's Supper, would be at the center of our lives. We read that they did this as often as they met. When they were meeting, they weren't just meeting to complain about work or their spouse or their kids or whatever. The fish aren't biting. They were meeting to have communion with God because that was at the center of their lives. When we partake, we truly do become the body of Christ. Not necessarily because something miraculous happens with the emblems, but because something miraculous happens here. Make no mistake, communion is a miracle. When you get together and you partake of this meal, you become the church, which originally meant an assembly, the assembly of the saints, the holy ones of God who are about his work. You become Jesus to the world. That's why we're called Christians, little Christs, who go out and do his work and his service. So today I just want to leave you with a question. How are you going to make communion, fellowship, the breaking of bread with each other and with God, the center of your lives?